Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Alright, if you can find your place in the Scriptures this morning, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 9. Perhaps a, an unusual title, maybe for what you might be expecting, Real Life Discipleship. So, whenever you share the gospel with somebody, like you, you get into a conversation and you start talking about spiritual things and eventually, hopefully, you start talking about Jesus... Here's the question that typically comes up. Here's the question most people want to know the answer to. Uh, if you're telling them something this serious, right, here's what they want to know. What difference does all this make to me? In other words, they want to know why this story that you've told them, why it matters so much, right? Because here's the thing, if... If it doesn't matter, if it's not that important, but yet we're trying to communicate that it is important, you know, they're going to probably eventually get to that place in their response where they're like, well, I just I don't see the need. You know, I, I don't need that. Like, I'm doing fine how I am. That's, that's what a lot of people want to think. See, a lot of people don't realize they have a problem, and so if you don't realize you have a problem, you're not going to be looking for the solution to the problem. So if you're offering a solution to a problem they don't realize they have, unless you can demonstrate clearly this is a need, you have a need, and this is the remedy. So unless you connect those two things, oftentimes folks won't see uh, the importance of what you're saying. They want to know, how is this going to impact my life? Right? That, that's what people want to know. So here's the question. What do you tell them? What will you tell them? The next time you have a conversation about Jesus, and somebody asks that question, maybe not in those words, but you can tell maybe that's what they're really wanting to know, what are you going to tell them? We need to think about that because we need to have an answer for that. You don't have to know every answer to every question about Scripture. Okay, so let me just kill that uh, thought right now. In order for you to faithfully share the gospel and tell people about Jesus, you don't have to know every answer to every question. But you do need to know why it matters. You need to know why the gospel is important. Right? Because that's one of the deepest answers people need to have. Why does this influence my life or impact my life? Why does this matter to me? So let me read for us this morning. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. I'll go down to verse 17. Words will be on the screen if you prefer to follow along there. Here's what the Bible tells us verse 9. As Jesus went on from there... He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. 
and he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Father, I pray today in Jesus' name, help us. Help us understand. Lord, help me speak clearly. But I pray you guard my words that I won't say anything you don't want me to say, but I'll say everything you want me to say. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us understand, help us be obedient, and just as a reminder, help us to understand that if you don't show up and do something in our hearts, nothing's going to happen. We need you more than we need anything else. So God, help us today. Help me today. And I pray Christ will be glorified. It's in his name I ask. Amen. Real life discipleship. We know what discipleship is, right? The Great Commission that we'll get to. At the end of this gospel, go make disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission. Discipleship. Introduce people to Jesus. Share the gospel as people believe and trust in Jesus, then help them. Help them learn. Help them grow. Put them on the right path. Show them what it means to read Scripture. Show them what it looks like to pray. Help them grow in their relationship with Jesus. Walk beside them. Do life together. Discipleship. But I put these two words, real life, because we know the principles, I think. You know, we know Scripture. We know what it means, this idea of discipleship. But what's it look like in real life? What, what, practically speaking, what are we supposed to be doing? Right? Well, Jesus, in, in His unique way, in a way that, that none of us could ever do, he shows us some different aspects of discipleship very clearly. And the first one's in verse 9. Follow Jesus when He calls. You've got to start somewhere, right? Follow Jesus when He calls. Matthew is talking about himself. 
Now, if you go to the parallel passage in Mark and in Luke, they're going to call him Levi. But this is Matthew talking about himself. Maybe that's why he's so brief. He don't want to draw a lot of attention to himself. But here's what he says. Just one verse, verse 9. Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Doesn't sound like a big, you know, a big to-do, right? It's just he told him to follow him, and he did, right? But let's really understand what's going on with Matthew. Okay, because Jesus observes him sitting in his booth, so he sees what his profession is. Now, do we know anything about tax collectors from Scripture? Were they popular? Think about it. Put it in our day. Anybody lining up to just congratulate the IRS for the fine job they're doing? <laughs> nope. Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I've, everybody's got their opinions on it. I, partic- I, mean, I don't particularly like being robbed, you know. But that's, that's what we're talking about. Matthew's a tax collector, so he was hated. He was hated because as a tax collector, you know, he's not necessarily the most honest of people, you know. He's, he's one for the government, one for me, one for the government, one for, you know, something like that. You know, he's, he's wealthy. He's getting wealthier because of his profession. So here's, what, here's some things we know just by virtue of that. When Jesus calls him out of the tax collector's booth, he, if he gets up, no questions asked, he knows something about Jesus. He's at least heard of him. He's at least maybe seen him around, right? He knows a little bit, but here's what he, what he also knows. He's leaving a source of material wealth, right? He's leaving that behind. Jesus said, follow me. He gets up and follows him. End of story. Right? So he's leaving that. Here's the other thing he's leaving. And this is a little bit more nuanced. You know, you think about what's going on here in Matthew's life. What are the chances, let's say this whole following Jesus thing doesn't work out for him, and he needs to come back into society and get a job. Anybody going to give a former tax collector a job? Probably. Probably not going to be on the top of the list, right? Because they assume... Well, you are a tax collector. You're probably dishonest, so I'm not going to hire you for any job. And first of all, I don't like you because you are a tax collector, so I don't want you working with me. You know, that type of attitude. So he's not only leaving a source of material wealth, he is um, entering into a relationship to where future job prospects are going to be minimal, right? What I'm trying to get at is this. There is sacrifice being made. Matthew is not just taking a different road and, you know, equal or better or whatever. He's sacrificing some things from an earthly standpoint. Okay? So we have to understand that's what's going on with Matthew. Jesus takes the initiative and calls him. And Matthew responds by following immediately without question. Leon Morris wrote that Matthew doesn't speak of any preliminary conversation, nor does he say what previous contact he had had with Jesus, though it's probable he knew Jesus, because how could a citizen of Capernaum not know about him at this point? Or what knowledge he may have had of Jesus' teaching. He concentrates on the one central 
thing. Jesus called him with the words, follow me. And this figure of speech seems to indicate a continuing following. And there's no doubt Matthew is describing a call to discipleship with everything that means. The key point is Matthew obeyed. When Jesus called, he followed. So what are we supposed to do? What's the personal application of this first verse? When Jesus calls, follow. Follow him. He says, follow me, we follow him. He's, he's worth that. Follow Jesus. Number two, share Jesus with others. When you get to verse 10 down to verse 13, this next little uh, characteristic of discipleship is uh, described here. It says Jesus was reclining in the house. Now, so Matthew has a little get-together of his buddies. Now, tax collector, who are his buddies? Other tax collectors, shady characters maybe, what we might consider, right? It's not like, um, it's not like a, a church gathering at his house, okay? That's not what's happening. It's folks that uh, the rest of society might not necessarily want to be around, okay? That's what we can gather from what's going on here, especially from the response the Pharisees give. See, tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is the honored guest. He has recently called Matthew to follow him. Matthew has followed him. And now he says, well, hey, let's have a party. Let's get together and eat some food and hang out a little bit. And so that's what's happening. So the Pharisees either see or learn what's going on. Interesting little fact here, though. The Pharisees ask the disciples a question. But Jesus answers the question. Right? You see that? Look at the text right here. It says that, verse 11, the Pharisees said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with these people? Verse 12, Jesus said. So he's not going to allow the disciples to answer that question. He's going to speak up for himself. So he gives some information about why he chooses to hang out with this particular crowd, a crowd that the Pharisees would have nothing to do with. Okay, so this answer is very controversial in the eyes of the Pharisees. But look what Jesus says. It's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. Let me ask you a question. Whenever you go to take a shower... Is it because you're already clean? No. You take a shower because you need to get clean. Right? Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. Now in this particular context, the healthy are the people who think they're good. They think they're righteous. Let's go back to the introduction before I started this. Uh, what do people generally think? I'm good. I'm all right. I don't need Jesus. I'm doing fine, right? I'm doing fine. They're not thinking spiritually. They're just thinking in general, in, uh, you know, earthly context. I'm good. I'm a good. I'm a. Ever heard this? Ever said this? I'm. I'm basically a good person. Really? 
if you're basically a good person, then why don't we do this little experiment? Why don't we have everybody take out a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil and write down everything you have said for the last seven days, everything you have thought for the last seven days, everywhere you've been for the last seven days, and everything you've spent a penny of your money on for the last seven days. Anybody want to volunteer? I don't. <laughs> yeah, not seven days, seven minutes, right? Do, you, do we understand? I don't, think we, I don't think we can comprehend how false the statement is, I'm basically a good person. If, if, we, if anybody thinks they are basically a good person, they are delusional or else just ignorant or both. Okay, what do I tell you all the time, or try to? I'm a horrible person. I, I'm a, I try to be a good person by cultural standards. I try, to be, I try to be a good person by scriptural standards. But guess what? I'm not. I need Jesus real bad. And I'm not the only one. I don't want everybody having a spotlight on my thoughts and my feelings and my everything. But Jesus has that 24-7. And we have the audacity to think that we're good. The Pharisees, you see their attitude? They're, they're looking at Jesus hanging out with these people, these people, tax collectors and sinners, and they're wanting to know why he would do that. The, the real uh, underlying current here in verse 11 is, we would never, we would never hang out with these people. Right? The Pharisees, you know, if it rains good, they're going to drown because their nose looking down their nose at everybody and water can go, you know what I'm saying? That's their attitude. We would never hang out with these people. Well, here's a great question for the religious establishment. If you would never hang out with these people, then who's going to tell these people about Jesus? If you hang out with Christians all the time, kind of hard to have an audience for the gospel, isn't it? Somebody's got to go to the lost people. And last I checked Scripture, it's supposed to be the church. Y'all all right? Jesus was modeling real-life discipleship. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people need a doctor. Then Jesus does something wonderful. I love when he does this. He looks at the Pharisees who have asked this question, and he quotes the Old Testament, specifically a minor prophet, Hosea, from chapter 6, verse 6. And so what do the Pharisees know really, really well? The Old Testament, right? So he quotes from their book that they hold on to and says, Don't you remember? Why don't you go and look what he says. This is so hilarious. He says, you need to go and learn what this means. He says it right there. Verse 13, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes the scripture, Hosea 6, verse 6. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. Let me tell you, let me break that down. The New Testament here uses the word elios for mercy, compassion. But the word used in Hosea chapter 6 is the Hebrew word kesed, which is, is loyal love. That's what that means. So here's what Jesus says. 
you think you're good because you check off all the boxes and follow the sacrificial system to the T and you know you do every little legal requirement that the scripture says to do so you think you're good right meanwhile you're treating people like trash you're treating people like they're not good enough why don't you learn what this means he says in verse 13 go learn what this means I don't need your sacrifice I need your heart to be right I need you to go love people. I need you to have mercy and compassion on people. I don't need you to forsake the truth, but I don't need you to think that you're good because you sat in church and checked the box and fulfilled some requirement. You understand what that means? Jesus never needs a thing we have. He gave us everything we have, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills they're standing on. He owns everything. Anything we have is on loan from Him. He doesn't need it. He needs us to see that He wants our heart to be fully devoted to Him. Compassion, mercy, faithful, loyal love. He needs that, not sacrifice. The rest of that verse in Hosea says, I delight in compassion, loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You want to know what God really wants? He doesn't need our offerings. He commands us to be obedient so that when we give, we're not giving because He needs it. We're giving to demonstrate our loyal love for Him. You see how that works? This right here, these plates, do you think, have you ever heard this? Somebody has said in some church somewhere, well, if you don't, you don't do what I think you ought to do, I'll just stop giving. You know what I say to that? Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Bye. You think you're going to hold God hostage with your pocketbook? You think the God of all creation can't supply the needs of the church when the church follows Him? Are y'all alright? Y'all listen to what I'm saying? God doesn't need a dollar out of your pocket. He gave you everything that's there to begin with. He will provide for His church. He will provide for the mission of the church. We can't manipulate God. He doesn't need the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. What He wants is you. He wants your heart. He wants you to love Him like He has loved you. With obedience. That's what that looks like. And see, the, the key to this one little piece here, why is Jesus hanging out with these people? Is He supporting... Oh, this is good. Today... Is He supporting that sinful activity? Is He condoning these things that they're doing? Don't get so involved with these people because people will think you approve of that lifestyle or whatever it is they're doing that you think is wrong or that the Bible says is wrong. Well, guess what? Do you think Jesus approves of sin? No. Not for a second. Jesus is not there to approve of a lifestyle that's sinful. Jesus is there to love somebody toward repentance where they will see the love of Christ and they will surrender themselves and repent of their sins and turn away from that and go follow Jesus. 
How are you going to call somebody to repentance if you're constantly pointing your finger and telling them how wrong they are? That's not our place. I'm not the judge. I'm a witness. I just say what, what Jesus says, but I, this morning, every Sunday, every Sunday morning, I have a list of people, 32 or 3 people, that I'm praying for. Most of them preachers, not all of them. And I send out a little thing on social media just to remind them, hey, I'm praying for you today. And this morning I said, speak the truth in love. The truth of the gospel shared with the love of Christ. And here's the funny thing about truth and love. If you, can't, you have to have a balance. You can't have all of one and none of another, either one. If you have all truth, you won't be wrong, but you'll be wrong. If you have all truth and no love, you end up with legalism. Better check your boxes. Right? You, you have all love and no truth. You end up with liberalism. Well, just do whatever you want. God loves you. God is love. Well, God is holy. And He's also love. So, if you have all love and no truth, it's liberalism. Just do what you want because God loves you. And both of those are wrong. You have the truth spoken with love. I love you and you're hurting yourself. I really I don't want to see this happen to you. Please, please consider Jesus. He loves you, but He doesn't want to leave you the way you are. He wants to make everything new. That's the truth with love. You have to balance those. That's what sharing the gospel is all about. That's what real life discipleship looks like. You can't have all of one and none of another. And, and as Christians, we have to avoid uh, this mindset that says, well, I can't hang out with these types of folks who do these types of things because, well, then people will see me hanging out with them and they'll think this or that of me. Uh, there is great freedom in not caring what people think about you. I'm just going to say, you know, that's liberty. That's true liberty. Doesn't mean you want to, you know, I don't pray, contrary to what you may think, I don't pray every Sunday morning, Lord, please let me offend as many people as I can today. That's not what I'm trying to do. But, if you preach this word right here, you're going to offend some people. The good thing about that is, I didn't write it, and so if, if you have an issue with it, you can take it up with the author. And he's more than capable of handling your objection. Christians, here's what Christians ought to be doing. We ought to be spending intentional time with those who are far from God without Jesus regardless of their cultural classification. And it's not to condone a sinful lifestyle or a sinful action. It's to show the love of Christ which calls them to repentance and faith. That's our goal. I can't just... Well, I want to just hang out with people who are just like me, believe the same way I do, who like the things I like, and then there's never any conflict. Have you met people? I mean, you can hang out with people, there's going to be some conflict. Right? Even if everybody agrees on everything, you're still going to argue about something because that's who we are. 
we need Jesus. So we can't hold back from hanging out with folks who aren't like us or who don't think like us or believe like us or like the things we like because everybody needs Jesus. I don't get to decide who I tell about Jesus. Jesus decides who I tell about Jesus. And He said everybody. Kind of leaves, you know, takes the guesswork out of it for me, right? Because I don't discriminate. Do you know Jesus? No. Well, would you like to? I can tell you about it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you think. If you don't know Jesus, you need to know Jesus. End of story. Makes it real easy for us. Share Jesus with others. Doesn't mean to be unwise. We're not trying to compromise our ethics or our beliefs, but it does mean, hey, life is messy sometimes. Sometimes you've got to get your hands dirty and tell some people about Jesus. That's what he wants us to do. Follow Jesus when he calls. Share Jesus with others. Number three, obey Jesus rather than tradition. Oh, no. I done gone to meddling now. Obey Jesus rather than tradition. You see, the Pharisees in verse 14 have this idea, and it has spilled over now onto those who have been following John the Baptist. Because you look at verse 14 and you see the disciples of John. That's John the Baptist. Those who were hearing his message in the wilderness and going out to him to be baptized for repentance of sins and he was preparing the way for the Messiah. But the, the issue was here, as Jesus came on the scene, then John the Baptist, before he was killed, was still kind of out there, and people were still just following him. And remember what John said in chapter 3, verse 30? I must decrease. He must increase. Uh, my job's done. There he is. Go follow him now, y'all. And, and, but people didn't want to let go, right? So these disciples of John came to Jesus and said, Why do we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Translation. We're checking our boxes on the legal checklist. Why aren't you? Why aren't your people doing that? Right? They're not being good Jewish folks. They're not following the law. So Jesus responds with three distinct illustrations. One about a wedding, one about clothes, and one about wine. And they're all three very instructive. He talks about the attendance of the bridegroom. They don't fast while the bridegroom is with them. But when the day comes that the bridegroom's taken away, then they'll fast. You know what he's talking about? Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. He's there. No need to fast. What do you do at a wedding? Do you do you mourn and weep? Well, I mean, sometimes, I guess. Y'all didn't, y'all didn't even get that. That was funny right there. Y'all should have been listening better. You don't, you don't mourn and weep at a wedding. You celebrate, right? You celebrate. Jesus is there. Why are they going to fast and mourn? They're going to celebrate. But when the day comes that Jesus taken away, then there will be fasting. There will be mourning. So he puts that in perspective. Then he uses these two other illustrations that are really interesting. you got a pair of blue jeans. They're just getting broken in good, right? Good and comfortable. But you get a hole in the knee. you got to put a patch on it. 
But you know what happens if you take a patch of fresh, never washed, never shrunk cloth, and you stitch that around that patch, what's going to happen the first time you wash it? This cloth is not like the rest of that cloth. And so when that patch rips and tears off, it's not just going to rip and tear off, it's going to take some of that other stuff with it, right? And ruin both of them. So Jesus says, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming here to just put a patch on your religion. I'm coming here to give you a whole new system, a kingdom system. It's not like Judaism. Then he gets to the wine part. New wine, old wineskins. You know, these have been seasoned. They're worn a bit. You put the new wine into the old wineskins, and so then it can't handle it, so it bursts. The wine pours out on the floor. The wineskin is ruined. Everything is ruined. You put new wine into fresh wineskins. That way both will be preserved. When Jesus comes to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, he doesn't say, hey, add this into your already existent religious system. He says, take all that and get it out of here. We're going to start fresh with something new. And then the person who receives that and the system itself, the kingdom, will both be preserved. You see what he's saying? This is such a, a beautiful picture. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He didn't just add another merit badge to his little sash, right? He's a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Jesus didn't come to be an add-on to an obsolete form of religion. He came to bring the ultimate fulfillment of God's law. That's what He said in Matthew 5. I didn't come to uh, do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. Give it its most perfect expression. What it was meant to be. He came to inaugurate this completely new kingdom and a new system of righteousness. All things passed away. Everything has become new. So when we see that, Jesus isn't telling them they shouldn't fast. What did Jesus do in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6? You remember what He said? I think it was 6, 1 through 4 or else, five, right in there, beginning of chapter 6. He taught them how to fast, right? He said, when you fast, don't make your appearance look all terrible. You know, wash your face, clean up. Don't make it appear to people that you're fasting because your Father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. Right? He told them the proper way to fast. He's not trying to do away with fasting. He's just trying to put it into perspective. It's all about the new kingdom, the new way of righteousness. See, when He gets on the scene, everything changes. Obey Jesus rather than tradition. This is a hard thing for Christians to do because here's what happens. The more you read this Word, the more you really get into it and see what it says and understand what it means, here's some things that inevitably happen. Our current ways of thinking get challenged. And nobody likes that. Because you may not realize this, but people generally don't like to have to change their mind about something. But that's bad because 
that means we all think that we are all always right about everything. But we're not. You know who is always right? God. That means His Word is always right. So when we come across things in Scripture that challenge our current attitudes and beliefs, we have to kind of sit with that, wrestle with that a little bit, until we understand, okay, God is right, and maybe I was not. Right? So maybe I need to adjust my way of thinking, adjust my beliefs. And that's what the Word will... It, it does a spiritual surgery in those who read it, study it, submit to it. We're to submit to God's Word. Obey Jesus, not tradition. So that looks like what discipleship is in the, in the context of real life. Now, I'll conclude this way. I read just a moment ago, I read 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, right? If anyone be in Christ, is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know what Paul said just a few verses later? Verse 20 and 21. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. It's as if God were making an appeal through us. And then he says, We beg you on behalf of Christ... Be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So now, we're at the end, but we need to go back to the question at the beginning. Do you remember the question I asked at the very beginning? Why does any of this matter to me? What's the point? What am I supposed to do with this information? What does discipleship look like in real life? I'm, I'm glad you asked. It shows me you're really engaged with what we're doing. The essence of real life discipleship is transformation. Transformation. Romans 12. Be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know what the purpose of that transformation is? And by the way, that's your spiritual act of worship. So that you might be able to test and approve that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, the will of God. You, but you have to be transformed in order to do that. That's the foundation of real-life discipleship. Each and every person who accepts the call of Jesus Christ upon their lives begins a process of transformation. And so the Bible calls this sanctification. It's got uh, an immediate aspect and it's got a progressive aspect. So basically it's just a theological word that talks about this process of radical change that Jesus brings about in the life of everyone who believes in Him. It is a radical change. You see, when you receive God's free gift of salvation and forgiveness by grace through faith, by the power of Christ. That's not the end of a process. It's the beginning of a process. You've just begun your sanctification, your transformation into being more and more like Jesus. Jesus called Matthew and completely changed his life. He was a tax collector. Hated, excluded, dishonest. Well, now he's following Jesus. And now his life is almost unrecognizable compared to what it was. 
Jesus called the other disciples and completely changed their lives, all except for one. His name was Judas Iscariot. He never truly followed Jesus, even though he served a very unique purpose within the plan of redemption. Did you know you can be close to Jesus geographically, but be far from Jesus spiritually? The pastor down the street at, uh, at Mount Hermon, Johnny Slice, you know what he said one time? Sometimes you can get so much God around you, you think you've got God in you. You can't say amen, you better say ouch. Being close to the Bible, being close to where Jesus is inhabiting the praises of his people doesn't put Jesus in your heart. A big difference. It's about transformation. See, Judas never truly followed Jesus. He he serves as this sobering example for us. This is what happens when someone ultimately rejects Jesus in the gospel. There's no change. There's no transformation. There's no forgiveness. There's no salvation. See, you, you say no to Jesus, you just said no to eternity with Christ. You've said no to forgiveness. You've said no to salvation. You've said no to change. That's what saying no to Jesus looks like. Clearly, Judas is an example of what not to do. So the question before us today is very simple. What are you going to do with Jesus and the gospel? Hopefully, you've already answered that question. Hopefully that's a settled reality. I'm following Jesus. How will you respond to the call of Christ to follow Him? This is the heart of Christianity. It's the beginning of transformation. Choose life. Choose forgiveness. Choose reconciliation. Just follow Jesus. Let me pray.